0: it's really good to be with you guys. Uh, like, uh, uh my friend said, uh, I'm Tony and, uh, pastor of a, a new church plant and, uh, have been teaching preaching since, uh, 2006 at two different seminaries at New Orleans Baptist Seminary and now Southeastern Baptist Seminary. Uh, not Chris Daughtry or the lead singer for anthrax or, um, you know, a tattoo parlor owner or a Harley shop owner. I'm actually a, a pastor and a professor. Um, I really like to think of myself as a reflective practitioner, because I really write and uh, teach on an elementary level, and so I really try to teach to my old self. Uh, I'm really a recovering jock who's trying to learn how to read, and so um, that's the type of baseline level I I try to give to our students, and um, today we have a very uh, difficult challenge to talk about preaching and contextualization. Preaching and contextualization. What I'd like to title this talk would be um, Proclaiming the Gospel Faithfully and Effectively to Everyone in the Room, as well as those who aren't in the room yet. Because I think we do have a responsibility of preaching to those who are not even in the room right now. Um, So, how do you preach faithfully the Gospel and effectively the Gospel? And this is indeed a journey of a lifetime. Learning how to do this, and so it's it's humbling to talk about preaching. I, I'm not an expert, and I find myself totally uh, or re- recurringly trying to evaluate my own preaching and uh, my own effectiveness. Um, and all of us are going into different contexts from time to time, and so we're always wrestling through what is contextualization and how to do it effectively. I remember when I was in third grade, I was working on contextualization. I wanted to be a rap star, and uh, I was rapping every Friday in in, in school, and so. Um, the only problem is I was in Eastern Kentucky, and that was a problem. It was poor contextualization uh, because they couldn't listen that fast, and I realized that I had to get a had a new passion. And uh, I was I'm originally from uh, Detroit, and uh, my grandma lives uh, near Eight Mile, actually, and uh, but moving to Kentucky was a bit of a different context. And so, uh, and then as I became a Christian in college. I went to uh, University of Cumberland's and uh, played baseball there, and. Uh, was became a Christian in college and didn't know what denomination I was or anything else. I got saved through FCA, and so my my church experience was really broad. Uh, that was helpful in many ways, and I landed in the Baptist world uh, and went to seminary. and I remember taking a red folder to seminary uh, that was full of sermons. and When I got there, and I sat under my first class on exposition, I threw my folder away. Uh, because I didn't think I'd ever preached a real sermon before, you know, as I was learning hermeneutics and how to interpret the Bible and all of these things. And so, um, it is a journey of a lifetime, learning how to do this effectively. But as I was thinking through how would I talk about preaching and contextualization, I think I could break it into three categories. Uh, the first would be clarifications. What are we talking about when we're talking about contextualization? So, clarification. Secondly, foundations. What are the biblical examples of contextualization that needs to to drive and undergird our ministry? And then thirdly, exhortations. Um, I'm going to give you just those two challenges, really, that I began with at the end of proclaiming the gospel faithfully every week and proclaiming it effectively every week. So I want to talk a lot about Jesus. Um, Perhaps when I get finished, you would have wished I'd talked more about contextualization. Sort of like uh, Mark Driscoll talked about a time when he was at a conference and they asked him to talk about how to reach Generation X. You remember when we were talking about that? And he got finished, and uh, he actually went on and on about the resurrection. And the guy was like, that's great. Are you going to talk about how to reach Generation X? And he's like, I just did. Uh, they're really into the resurrection. Uh, it's it's amazing that the tomb is empty, and that really excites people. And so uh, we we think you should uh, talk a lot about the resurrection. And and the guy was just, oh, we we need to talk about uh, you know how to reach Generation X. And and he said I just did. And then finally he looked at the guy and said, Do you believe in the resurrection? And he said, No, I don't. And um, he said, I've been to seminary. I've gone to seminary. And he was like, Driscoll was like, Well, you've gone to seminary, but you're not going to heaven. Uh, and, and I don't want to give you any information that will help you recruit for the wrong team. So uh, that's, that's the big E on the I chart. The guy finally said, look, uh, we disagree on this thing. And he was like, yeah, it's the big one, okay? This is the resurrection. So I want to make sure that church planters are talking about Jesus every week, that we're proclaiming the gospel every week. And as I observe many church planters, it seems to me that they're actually pretty good at connecting with unchurched people. Uh, that Some of them have went into church planning because of that very thing. They don't really like church people. It's not their ability to connect with unchurched people. It's my concern that they're not preaching the gospel clearly and effectively every week. Uh, and so we'll talk about gospel, contextualization, and, and a whole lot about gospel. Now, everybody contextualizes. There are some today who say, I don't contextualize, I just preach the gospel. Well, that's just silly. You're wearing clothes, all right? That's contextualization. We're glad you contextualized today. You, uh, <laughs> we have lights. We have media. We, we all contextualize. We're speaking in English. We read English Bibles. And the question is are we contextualizing effectively? So, clarifications. What contextualization is not, first of all, what I'm not talking about. I'm not talking about just being hip. Contextualization isn't about being a hipster pastor, it's not about being cool, it's about seeing people saved. It's also not wearing skinny jeans. That's not contextualization. That's just uncomfortable. Uh, it's not using foul language. That's just sin. It's not using a stool instead of a pulpit. For me, that's an open-handed issue. What I want to see is a guy have a Bible. There are many people who have big pulpits and no Bible. And so uh, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not, I'm not talking about compromising the message either. There's someone, they hear contextualization, they hear uh, just give them what they want to hear. And the goal is to contextualize without compromise. And I'm not talking about fitting in with the patterns of the world on issues like evolution or gender or marriage. So my question, once again, is how can you be faithful to the gospel and effective in communication? That's what we all want. That's our burden, right? Now, that's what I'm not talking about. This is what some people talk about when they talk about contextualization. Missiologists use the term contextualization to talk about the challenge of communicating the gospel across cultures. So, for example, some cultures have seven primary colors, and and some uh, only recognize four, and some only have categories of shiny and dull. And so, how would you translate verses that talk about different colors in these contexts? They have no category. Or how do you translate snow to a people who've never seen snow? Or the Zulu people have 120 words for walking. And so, there are contexts that we have to learn how to communicate across and the danger in contextualization is always twofold. On the one hand, you have to watch the danger of syncretism, adapting too much. And on the other hand, you have to avoid the danger of irrelevance, and that's making no sense when you're talking. Um, one of the examples of too, going too far in adaptation, what I call hyper-contextualization, is some translations now overseas in Muslim contexts are replacing son of God for "prophet." and I think that's a mistake. They're trying to contextualize, but in my opinion, they've gone way too far. So that's how missiologists talk about it. Now, pragmatists talk about contextualization like this. They ask the question, what type of church do we need to reach people? What kind of methods do we need to use? And we're all pragmatists to, to some level. So we ask questions like, will a rap concert work in our in our church? Well, it might, but it might not. Uh, Some try to develop ministries to uh, prostitutes because they're in big cities where there's uh, 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 exotic dance clubs and whatnot. And so the pragmatist is just asking those questions. But I'm a homiletician, so the question I'm asking is, how do you preach to various groups of people in a sermon, in a way that's faithful to the gospel and effective in proclamation? And that's our great challenge, is to preach it faithfully and to do it effectively without compromising the message. And the best preachers even speak to those who, as I said, aren't in the audience yet. Tim Keller says this. He says, if you preach to the unchurched skeptic who's not in the room, they will eventually come. And it might be weird when you first start doing it, <laughs> if you know everybody by name. And he says, what happens when you begin to address at times, not exclusively, but during the course of the message each week, when you begin to address the unchurched person, is that they will come either because they hear someone's answering their questions or because their friends believe you'll answer their questions and they will bring them. And so it's very important for the Bible guys, those who are really big on the Bible, who are doing 50-minute expositions, which we actually do at our church, that you're also addressing the unchurched outsider who doesn't know the language and you're speaking to his worldview, okay? So um, this is the challenge. It's, It's hard work. So let me give you some foundations. That's point one, clarifications. We're talking about this idea of faithfulness and effectiveness. Secondly, what are the examples of this? Well, the classic text, if you have a Bible, you can open there, Is First Corinthians chapter 9. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time reading and expounding this passage. I just want you to see the two big ideas here on this issue of, of gospel and contextualization. First Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16 to verse 26. I'll just read it and point out a few things here. Paul says, For if I preach the gospel, that that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my rights in the gospel." For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant of all. That I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. Though I myself, uh, not being myself under the law. That I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. That I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became the weak. That I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Then he goes into this section, right, on discipline and controlling his body. And he concludes in verse 27 saying, But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. Now, two things that are really obvious. I'm not very smart, but I can count. Paul says gospel and preaching a lot. That's very important, okay? Many want to do away with proclamation in order to contextualize. And you may be in this room today considering that, just doing away with proclamation because you want to contextualize. Many are diminishing the role of proclamation. Proclamation is primary. There is no substitute for proclamation. In this passage, proclamation precedes his comments on contextualization being all things to all men, that he might save some. In fact, the whole book of 1 Corinthians is a book about proclamation. It be, it's bookended with sections, famous sections on proclamation, right? Chapter 1 and 2 about proclaiming the message of the cross, and chapter 15 about the resurrection. In between this, we have these issues that Paul is dealing with. So Paul is definitely passionate about proclaiming the gospel. What some are arguing for today is to do away with monologue in place of dialogue. They want to give up preaching and, and just do dialogue, meet at a pub or meet at a coffee house or whatever, and do away with this. And I just want to say, don't. Um, why? Well, it fails to be preaching. You can call it what you want, but it's not preaching. And it invites misguided people into the discussion. And practically, this method cannot make up for large growth that might occur in your church. How do you do dialogue with 500 people? Theologically, there seems to be a misunderstanding with how the body of Christ works, that we are using our gifts differently and on different days. Not everybody needs to participate in corporate worship. They need to participate using their gifts during the week and other places on Sundays, right? And I think most of this, what is underneath this, is a rejection of authority, that people don't want to sit under the authority of Scripture, and so they're minimizing proclamation. So I just want to say, hey, we can't get around this. We shouldn't want to get around this. Our God speaks. In the Old Testament, he raised up prophets to preach. In the New Testament, we had the apostles and the, and the pastors and the teachers who taught and preached. God raises up people with the gifts for teaching and preaching. And so there is a place for dialogue, most certainly, in small groups and other settings. But I would just urge the guy who wants to be contextual not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. In fact, I love what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy four three. after he gives the famous charge about preaching. He says, for the time will come when they will not endure sound teaching. And it's, what he's basically saying is preach because they don't want you to preach. He doesn't say capitulate to the culture because they don't like authority. Now stop preaching, will you? No, that's the very grounds for him saying that's why you must preach. So, you know, we're, we're thinking about sending guys to Boston. And, and we recently read in the uh, Unitarian Church when we were up there some of their little pamphlets on what they believe. And so it's just littered with statements about how they don't believe in the inspiration of the Bible. And there's just no truth and all of those things. And we're not sitting down with our interns saying, hey, guys, they don't like truth and authority in Boston. Okay, so don't do it. We're saying this is the very reason we're sending you to Boston is because we need someone saying, thus says the Lord with the Holy Scriptures. So notice that in this section, right, that it's first about proclamation. Then secondly, you also notice in 1 Corinthians 9, audience sensitivity. Paul is obviously sensitive to the different people groups that he was around. He was aware of culture and theology and customs. Craig Blomberg, in his excellent commentary on 1 Corinthians on this passage, says the following. He says, in light of verses 19 to 23, it is hard to justify the prevailing patterns of evangelism by formula, using identical tracks, sets of questions, or prepackaged approaches on everyone with whom we want to share Christ. Paul's model far more closely approximates friendship evangelism, coming alongside and getting to know unbelievers valuing them as God's creation in His image in and of themselves, and not just as potential objects of conversions. Then as we become, this is important, then as we become familiar with each person's unique hopes, unique hopes and fears, we may contextualize the gospel in such a way as to speak most directly to those concerns. Now, what are some examples of this? Well, If you just turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, Paul's talking about eating and drinking to the glory of God, and he's talking about doing that in a context in which you're sensitive to Jews and Greeks. And then he says, be imitators of me. He's expecting his people to do this. You also see this in Acts chapter 16. As Paul is in Athens, he's doing, Acts 17, he's doing something different than he does in the synagogues. You guys know that quite well. Uh, In fact, one of my favorite stories in the book of Acts is when he has to circumcise Timothy. How would you like that as an internship? He's like, uh, he, he meets Timothy when he's a teenager, and he comes back to Lystra, and he's all well-spoken well of by the brothers, and he's recruiting Timothy. Hey, you need to go with me. And he's he what's it like, Paul? Well, you know, they throw rocks. If you've got a helmet, bring it. Uh, and uh, by the way, there's this one little thing. I'm going I'm to have to circumcise you. Uh, and what was that about? That was about getting into the synagogue. That was about being able to freely preach the gospel, and uh, quite uncomfortable. So that's important. Uh, Steve Timmis, on the other side of the pond, says this. This is a really good quote. I want you to get this. He says, Paul never treated one group of people the same way as another. He always preached the gospel, but he knew his context. In every situation, there needs to be, watch this now, a point of contact and a point of conflict. A point of contact with people understanding their values, history, communication style and a point of conflict that reveals how their own narrative conflicts with that of the gospel. That's important. A lot of people get the point of contact, but they don't get the point of conflict. They were trying to understand their worldview that collides with the gospel. Okay? He goes on and he says, it is impossible to be context neutral. So we need to be context savvy. While we can't be indifferent to the culture, we also can't be enslaved by it because that will cause us to be blind to the point of conflict. Okay? I'll unravel that a little bit more. Now, also, we could say another biblical example of contextualization are the epistles themselves. That's same theology written to a context. We could add to that in 1 Corinthians fourteen, twenty-four, and 25, Paul is talking about in corporate worship being sensible, seeker sensibility, you might say, of being aware that, again, unchurched people are in your presence. We could also add that the four gospels are an example of contextualization. Same story written to different audiences, Right. In addition to that, the greatest example of contextualization, of course, is Jesus himself who took on a culture, took on a language, took on a job, etc., and communicated the message. Now, there are a few extremes to avoid. We must avoid, in our contextualization, sinning. You're not free to sin in contextualization. It's quite interesting, isn't it, that after Paul talks about contextualization, we have one of the strongest passages about self-control in the New Testament. It's amazing. I beat my body to keep it under submission. He says. So that means you can't be, you know, a Christian axe murderer to win Christian axe murderers. You, you can't you can't be a Christian pole dancer to win pole dancers. You can't you can't uh, be a Christian boy band, okay, to to win uh, 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 Christian boy bands. Speak effectively, yes. Please do that, right? Uh, compromise the message, no. Sin in the name of contextualization, no. So avoid that extreme of sinning in contextualization. Now, another thing to point out here in 1 Corinthians 9 is that contextualization, it really, in my opinion, is an act of love. It's an act of love. You see what Paul said when he goes through this issue on contextualization. He says, I've become a servant of all. That's amazing. And who does he sound like here? He sounds like Jesus. I've emptied myself, right? I've come not to be served, but to serve. I'm coming serving these people, right? I become a servant of all. Every good parent does contextualization. Same principles, different context, different child. Every good coach knows you can yell at one, and he's okay. Yell at another, he starts crying. Use a different approach, you know? Uh, Titus is told, hey, teach the women this, teach the men this. So, those are some foundations, okay? Some examples of this. Now, finally, exhortations. Let me give you Uh, Two of them I've already mentioned, and I want to press them. Preach the gospel clearly every week. And then secondly, preach it effectively. And to do that, I want to encourage you to prepare more carefully. Okay? Now, I have two groups in my mind. Some are not preaching the gospel clearly every week. They think they are. They think I'm talking about somebody else. But they're not preaching the gospel every week. They may be preaching the Bible but not preaching the gospel. They may be saying true things but they're not preaching the gospel. So I want to urge you and to pattern yourself after Paul not just in contextualization but in gospel centrality. There's a second group that isn't going far enough in audience sensitivity. They just sort of use the 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 you know the idea I just exegete and deliver. And so I want to push that a little bit. To think a little more carefully about preparation. Now, 1 Corinthians 15 gives us a picture of what we're preaching. 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul says in verse 1, and here he just basically lays out the gospel, doesn't he? He says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. Notice again, it's preaching. Of which I received, I didn't make it up, he says. The goal in gospel preaching is not innovation. We tell our people, hey, we got nothing new. Okay. Our goal is to simply pass on what we have received. Do it in their language, yes. Try to understand their worldview and how their worldview collides with the gospel, yes. But we're not changing the gospel. Paul says, I received it. I pass it on in which you, he says, are being saved if you hold to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. And Paul begins then to unpack it. For I deliver to you what is of first importance. I love that. The gospel is of first importance. So I just want to encourage you to saturate every sermon with the gospel. I remember being on a plane with a Jewish guy one time. He got on the plane. He was from New York. and We were sitting down, and I was hoping to be alone by myself, and he stumbles on the plane late, and he's all sweaty and hot, big dude. And he opens a Hebrew Bible, and I had my Greek Bible. And I was looking at him, and he was reading Esther. And he was looking at me, and I was reading Galatians about how, you know, boast only in the cross, and there's a whole lot, of course, about, ritual and Judaism and circumcision. And and we're sitting here, and he's like, are you in seminary? And I was like, yeah, are you? He's like, yeah, I'm a Jewish cantor. I'm a singer. And I'm going down to uh, New Orleans for the Feast of Purim. And I was like, oh, elaborate, please. And he was going on telling me what they do. And I was asking about his church and uh, his synagogue and everything that he goes to. And he was telling me about what they do and how the feast of Purim, they're commanded to get drunk and all those things. Like, That's a good church growth strategy. Uh, and and we began talking, and he asked me what I was preaching on, and I told him, and he said, you know, if I had been a, a first century uh, student under Paul, I would have become a Christian, or under Jesus. And I said, really? He said, yeah, because I took a class on Paul's use of the Old Testament, and it makes really perfect sense. And he said, if I was lived in the first century, I'd have been a Christian. I was like, actually, man, it's really amazing me. You can be a Christian in the 21st century, and. And he said, this is going to be an interesting conversation, isn't it? And I said, yeah, it's going to be a really interesting conversation. So we we started talking, a really nice guy. At the end of the day, he said, you know what? It was just all socio-political. I'm like, what are you talking about? He said, well, there's a lot of people today who are self-proclaimed messiahs, just like Jesus. He was a charismatic teacher, and people followed him. We still have guys in New York that say they're messiah. I'm like, well, you might have an argument unless God raised Jesus from the dead. If the tomb is empty, that changes everything. He's not just another self-proclaimed Messiah. He's not just a teacher. And the resurrection, when you read the apostles, that is the big E on the eye chart. You trace the book of Acts. Where do they end? The resurrection. Every week, we want to remind people that the tomb is empty and the throne is occupied, that Jesus is alive, right, and he has died to pay the payment of their sin. We want to make sure there's explicit gospel. Not just an allusion to the gospel, an implication of the gospel, but the gospel is heralded. Notice how Paul says, I deliver to you what's of first importance. Not, not saying that other things are not important, but this is just of first importance, right? And so what is the gospel? Well, Paul tells us here that first of all, we could say it's Christological, that Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised, accordance with the scriptures, that it's about Jesus. John Stott says, the gospel is not preached if Christ is not preached. Luther says, the gospel centers in the Son of God. So gospel preaching is a Christ-centered preaching. Paul could say in Colossians 1, eight, Him we proclaim. The subject of our message is a person. We do not proclaim ourselves. We proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. Right? Paul said, whether I have good motives or bad motives, Christ is preached and I rejoice. And so let me encourage you to center it there. Michael Horton wrote that book, Christless Christianity, recently, and he asked the question, what would happen if Satan took over a city? And he quotes Barnhouse, who said, basically, no, if Satan took over a city, all the bars would be closed. The kids would be polite. They would say, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. The streets would be clean, but Christ would not be preached. In other words, Satan is not scared of your moral improvement plan. What he doesn't want is the gospel. What he doesn't want is Christ being preached. Mormons preach moralism. Muslims have moralism, right? There, you, could, you could be of anything. Oprah and Andy Griffith, there, there are moral principles. Our job is to proclaim the gospel. That's what people don't have. And so center it in Christ, right? Lloyd-Jones was even critiqued on one occasion about this. And I love this about Lloyd-Jones. A guy came up to him one time after hearing Lloyd-Jones preach. And he says, I cannot make up my mind what you are. I cannot decide if you're a hyper-Calvinist or a Quaker. It's interesting, isn't it? He says, because you talk of God's action and God's sovereignty like a hyper-Calvinist and the spiritual experience like a Quaker, then he says, but the cross and the work of Christ have little place in your preaching. And what would you do if someone said that about your preaching? You don't talk about the cross. Lloyd-Jones went home, and he just locked himself up, basically. You can read this in Ian Murray's biographies, or Dallimore, rather. And he began to study books on the atonement. He finally came out and he told his wife, I think I've found out what's wrong with my preaching. And I write about this in the Proclaiming Jesus book, that even the best preachers need to improve. And even the best can be doing something that is not following this pattern of making sure every week what is central is Christ. You hear a lot of talk today about life-changing preaching. And I'm all for life-changing preaching. But you cannot preach life-changing sermons unless the life-changer is at the heart of the sermon. Your outline won't change anybody, right? Your cleverness won't change anybody. We're in this room because Jesus changed us. And that's what we want to commend to people, right? So he says it's Christological. Secondly, he says it's biblical. It's according to the Scriptures. That is, it's rooted in the Scriptures. And Paul, of course, is referring in this section to the Old Testament. And so the Bible is sort of like a two-act play. You need to know a little bit about the first act to understand the characters in the second act. Or as I like to say, it's a book with the answers in the back. It makes sense of the Old Testament through the New Testament. And Paul understood that the, God, the, the Bible centered in Jesus. He told Timothy that the Scriptures, the Old Testament, are able to make us wise for salvation, that the Bible is about Jesus. He is the hero of the Bible. I just want to say we should make the hero of the Bible, the hero of every sermon that we preach from the Bible, right? He goes into Thessalonica. What's Paul do? He doesn't hand out four spiritual laws or chick tracks. He opens up the Old Testament, preaches the gospel. Acts 13, his first recorded sermon, he traces the history of the Old Testament. Acts 26, he basically says, I've done nothing wrong. I'm just preaching the Old Testament rightly. Why, why are you mad at me? Uh, Acts twenty eight twenty three. he's at the end of Acts, and he's still doing the same thing, unfolding the Bible, showing people how it points to Jesus. There just seems to be a great misunderstanding about the Bible, I think. A lot of people think the Bible is just an inspired book of virtues. And I want to say with Paul that the Bible is a hymn book, H-I-M. It's about him. Paul says, him we proclaim. He is the, the revelation of the mystery that was concealed, that's now been revealed to us. And it is very possible to know stories in the Bible but miss the story of the Bible. You see this all over the place. You see this in children's sermons, how people apply the Old Testament. We're going you know, to have a little story now about Noah, and we send off the kids saying, now go love animals, and we say nothing about the gospel. So I think for, for our own soul, what we should have in us before Sunday is this longing to hear people say, not what a great sermon, but what a great Savior. That is the goal, right, in, in preaching is to send them away with the vision of Christ. Some people say, well, won't this get old? Maybe if you're old. Maybe if you're boring. But I'm not advocating boring Christ-centered preaching. Don't be Bueller. You know, Bueller. And hearing my wife say she loves me just doesn't get old. It get old for you guys. Been gone for a few days. I, I'm actually looking forward to it tonight. Um, and it won't get old if you consider the riches of Jesus's glory. Jesus' glory. Uh, Paul says we preach the unsearchable riches of, glory, of Christ. Unsearchable. <laughs> you never get to the bottom of it. For all eternity, you're still, you know, in awe of this gospel. And it's not going to get redundant if you consider the fact that everyone is longing for this. Whether conscious or subconsciously, they're all longing for glory. And only Jesus fulfills that. And it won't get redundant if you just do the math. You only have 50 weeks. What are you going to give them? You know, a couple shots, right? (laughs) I say we, we give them what is of first importance. And it shouldn't get redundant to us if we remember this is actually the way we grow as you read the New Testament. That issues like race are gospel issues. Marriage are gospel issues. Forgiveness are gospel issues. And so when Paul gives ethical exhortations, he roots them in the gospels. So we should forgive not just because we're nice, but we should forgive because Christ has forgiven us. We should love our wives not just because that's the right thing to do, but because Jesus has loved us and gave himself for us. And we should love our brother as ourself and cross racial divides because the kingdom of God is made up from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, that all of these things are rooted in the gospel. So yes, preach the ethical exhortations, but root them in the gospel. I love Bonhoeffer. You know, when you read Bonhoeffer's biography, what's he doing at the end of his life? They said, they asked him to do a a Bible study just hours before he died. What would you teach on hours before you died, before you go and get hanged? Isaiah 53 was Bonhoeffer's text. He never got over the gospel. David Brainerd says, I have no need to preach moral instructions to my Indians when I preach Christ crucified. That takes care of itself. So let me just encourage you with that. It's biblical. Thirdly, it's historical. You see that in the text, that Jesus actually lived and died. There's actually an empty tomb in the Middle East. It's also doctrinal. Notice how he says Christ died for our sins. That's substitution language. I would argue the center of the gospel. Jesus lived the life we could not live and died the death we should have died. A lot of people also today, some in the same camp of the dialogue, guys, want to do away with substitution. They say, is it really that important? Only if you don't want to go to hell, you know? Other than that, it's not a big deal. Uh, I think you keep preaching propitiation just to find your terms. You keep talking about atonement. Just be clear, Right? It's also personal. Notice how Paul throughout this text keeps saying, you believed. You have to believe. It's practical. Notice what the gospel does to Paul. It makes him humble. So the gospel does to us. He gets to the end of verse 10, and he says, you know, I am what I am by the grace of God. It also creates hard work. At the end of this magnificent chapter in chapter 15, Paul ends by saying that we should work hard because the tomb's empty. It creates unity as well. Paul goes at the end of chapter 15, verse 11, and he says, whether I or they or we, we you preach and we believe that there's a unity in this gospel. And the gospel is also doxological. At the end of chapter 15, he, he ends in a, in a hymn celebrating the fact that, that death has no more sting. And so we pray for our preaching, right, that it would be Christ-centered and, and that it would lead to adoration. As we point people to Jesus, the goal is not just information transfer, but adoration. That there is worship that takes place in the heart of people as they hear preaching. Preaching is not something in addition to worship. It is worship as we exalt Jesus before people. So, brothers, let's make the main thing the plain thing, week by week. Second exhortation. Deliver the gospel effectively every week. And this is where I'll try to get really practical and we'll wrap it up here. Five different parts of your preparation let me encourage you to work harder in as I try to work harder. In your overall preparation, let me encourage you with a few ideas. First of all, expect different worldviews when you preach. If you define a worldview in these four categories, origin, meaning, morality, and destiny, origin, where we came from, meaning, what's the purpose of life, morality, you know, how do we live, destiny, where are we going, We have people with all kinds of answers to those questions when they come in on a Sunday, right? So we must anticipate that. And what we're trying to do is try to enter the world of that skeptic, sympathize with their beliefs, show some points of connection, and then show them how it falls flat and how Christ is the only hope. A lot of of Bible guys just throw dynamite at the skeptic instead of going inside the rock and getting to know the person and then blow it up, you know? And if you're just throw in the grenades, they're not coming back. You have to respect them enough that you actually understand what they're saying. Sympathize with their belief. Show a point of contact, and then show them the conflict, as we said. This is why that doesn't work, you see? So contextualization, you could say it like this, isn't about making the gospel relevant. It's about showing the relevance of the gospel. It's not about making the gospel relevant. It is relevant. It's about showing the relevance of the gospel, how it collides with what they're thinking, okay? Also, in your overall preparation, remember Aristotle's philosophy of persuasion. Logos, pathos, and ethos. It still works. Logos, content. Have good content. Pathos, have passion, because that transcends. Generations, right? Love, passion. Ethos, credibility, that is your life, that still speaks volumes. Paul told Titus, in your teaching, show integrity, and in your life, be a model of good works. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 5, Paul actually shows us what logos, ethos, and pathos look like. He says, for we know, brothers, love by God that he has chosen you because our gospel, logos, came to you not only in word but also in the power of the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, pathos. Then ethos, watch this. He says, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you. You watched our lives. And so what we do outside of the pulpit is very persuasive for the skeptic. It's super important that our deeds illustrate our words, and our words explain our deeds. And these two need to be going hand in hand, right? So let me encourage you with that. Thirdly, keep your language understandable. We should try to be seeker-sensible, not seeker-sensitive. If seeker-sensitive means what I used to think it meant, which was uh, we believe substitution, but we just aren't going to talk about it. We believe in propitiation. We're not actually liberal. We're just not going to talk about it. Uh, Seeker-sensible says we're going to talk about propitiation. We're just going to make sure we understand what we're talking about. Do be seeker-sensible, right? Watch your terms and don't, and you have to fight this really as a preacher, preaching to your peers every week. What generally happens, if a guy never talks to real people, his sermons end up sounding stupid. You know what I'm saying? Like, they used to, I used to hear, like, well, you just study for six days and then you go preach. That's going to sound dumb because your interaction during the week is important because you're learning language. You're learning how to communicate with Joe the plumber and, you know, the, the guy down the block or, or whatever it is. And so uh, it's it's very important that we, we learn how to speak in the language of people. Luther modeled this quite well. Luther had 10 points on a good preacher, and they still work. He said, number one, be able to teach so people can follow you. Number two, have a good sense of humor. Number three, be able to speak well. Thanks, Luther. Number four, have a good voice. Number five, have a good memory. Number six, know when to stop. Some of us can prove in that, right? Number seven, Be sure of one's doctrine. Number eight, be ready to venture body and blood, wealth and honor for the word of God. Number nine, suffer oneself to be mocked and jeered at by all. And number 10, be ready to accept patiently the fact that nothing is seen more quickly in preachers than their faults. You see, at the heart of the Reformation was gospel and it was also contextualization. Because Luther wanted to get the word of God and the gospel in the language of people. Tyndale died over contextualization. He wanted every plowboy in England to be able to read a Bible. And so, again, that's why I say contextualization is about love. It's about making your language understandable so that people, real people, can understand this good news. Okay? Now, second part here, explanation. Just want to say one word here in your preparation. Be prepared for biblical cluelessness. Expect biblical cluelessness. And most of you know this in a church planning setting and really anywhere for that matter now. But I got saved in college, and I remember going to my first Bible study. I didn't know how to hold this thing, you know? Like, hey, you need a Bible. You need a Bible. So I went and got a Bible. And they're like, hey, turn to uh, Amos. I'm like, what's that What's that even mean, you know? It's like, are you Amos? Like, am I supposed to know who Amos is? I just, I just sort of got here, you know? And... There's no, sometimes you go and play, there's no even thought that, hey, somebody might not even know where we're going in the Bible or what this story is about. I remember my first Bible study was on the prodigal son, and I was a college student. As we are going to study the prodigal son. I was like, That's, yeah, you know who's that? It's great. Can't wait. I, I really was biblically clueless. Even our smart Christian kids are biblically clueless. To prove that, Donald Guthrie wrote a book called Reading the Bible for Life he, he's at Union University, and, and Guthrie says every year he gives an entrance exam, like a little test on basic Bible knowledge, and students, he says the average ACT, uh, uh, were, the recent gra- uh, group was over 31 at Union, and most of these were church kids, and he gave this literacy test, and the average score was a 57. Now, these are kids, like a really smart, many of them grew up in a church, so um, just expect b- biblical cluelessness. Again, it doesn't mean we don't teach the Bible. It just means we, we explain it clearly. And I would encourage you to keep telling the grand narrative over and over. I know it's a kind of a trendy thing now to talk about the grand narrative, and I keep telling our guys in seminary, listen, it's not in the church. So I know you hear it a lot, but I just want to encourage you to keep telling people how the whole Bible fits together and points to Jesus because they have no idea. They have no idea. When you use terms like born again, you have to explain that stuff. Born, it's like pop psychology teaches something like that, that you basically are to go into your blanket and try to come out of the womb again. It's sort of like a psychological technique. Is that what we're talking about? No, it's not what we're talking about. Uh, something else. My dad, 59 years old, just became a Christian. Amazing story of, of conversion. And my dad hates it when pastors just sort of skip around. Or they don't teach the Bible. He's, it's absolutely amazing to watch my dad who has no categories. And he's, he says, son, you know, I read through the Bible twice this year that's great, Dad. And he's like, I just read, I love the New Testament. I don't understand the Old Testament. I'm like, well, nobody else does, but just you know, keep reading it. And, uh, and my dad just, he, he wants to understand so badly, he's, but he's biblically clueless. And so now the question for me, used, it used to be preach to my old self. Now it's like preach to my dad. How can I preach to a 59-year-old who just started reading a Bible? I want to teach him all the sound doctrine that I can, but I want to put it in a language that he can understand it in. Just a word about illustrations. That's the third part. I would say throw out canned illustrations and illustration books, with the exception of a few maybe perhaps. Let me just encourage you to be natural, too, to tell your own story, learn how to tell a good story, and consider different types of illustrations, especially as you're trying to reach out to unchurched crowds, right? Different groups of people, different demographics. Application is one of the areas we really need to grow in. This is the fourth part. Let me encourage you in your application, this goes along with the gospel, to go deeper than just behavior, to get beneath behavior and show them the idolatry that leads to misbehavior, to get inside people and, and learn what it is that's underneath their, their disobedience and their sin. Uh, Keller's wrote and, written a lot about this in Counterfeit Gods, and it's a very, actually, good book on for preachers as we try to understand what it what it looks like to understand idolatry. In addition to application, what I've tried to envision now also with the help of, of Keller's teaching is to speak to the prodigal, the older brother, and the Christian. Because there are three groups of people, really, you know. You have religious people who think they're saved, and they're not. And then you have the prodigal, who's just a hedonist. Then you have a Christian. It used to be there are only two ways to live, but in the parable of the prodigal son, there are three ways to live, right? So I found myself when I was in the Deep South trying to constantly convince people they were not Christians, you know, just because you did this or this or this, that you're, you're not, you need to really consider whether or not you're in the faith. Some of you are in a more hedonistic culture. They're not religious at all. And so in application, think about when you're making points, how do, would I apply this to the Christian? How would I apply this to the prodigal? How would I apply this to the religious person who is deceived, okay? Also within that, Let me just encourage you to have different times in your sermons where you have asides, where you step to the side and you talk to the unchurched skeptic. You address the prodigal. You address the older brother. And the way you'll get good at this is by diversifying your people context. Get outside of your normal group. Read widely. Spend time with other or unbelievers. Um, Do some counseling. Counseling will help your preaching because you will begin to answer questions from the text, questions that you heard that week. That's what inevitably happens in application. The people you're talking to every week is part of sermon preparation. It's helping you, okay? Um, The tendency for other preachers is just to preach to other preachers, and that's stupid, okay? Uh, Now, let me also encourage you in uh, application to practice the drip method of application for the church, Sometimes application needs to be aimed not at just individuals, but the corporate body. So let your vision drip week by week in your preaching. Instead of a one sermon a year vision sermon, let it drip week by week so that they're constantly hearing about it. All right, I've said enough about that. A couple final words, and I'm done. I would encourage you, when it comes to contextualization, the, some of the best contextualization will happen in sermon-based small groups. As people learn and think through what you preach in the context of people who know their names. They sit on your couch, they eat out of your fridge, and you can address them with what they've just heard. That's important. So remember, that's that's part of it. When it comes to leadership, have a way for people to be interacting and engaging with that sermon. I would also encourage you to to do something like an ask anything time for the congregation. Either a sermon series or text message questions or... Whatever, but learn what your questions are in that audience. Begin to think through what it is that people are thinking. This is what what we 're about to do at imago day we're going to we 're going to have people basically text message questions, and uh, we 're going to do this one of two ways: either after the sermon i 'm going to try to answer them or we 're going to do like a follow up Friday, which is going to be like a video blog and i 'm going to try to answer questions from sunday 's sermon and give them a heads up for next sunday i 'm probably just going to do it on my iPhone and video record it. Hey, guys, here were three questions. I preached a long time last week on qualifications of elders. Uh, here was a question. And just kind of work through that. Some other ideas some friends have used is basically having a luncheon every Sunday after uh, corporate worship in which people ask questions. Keller did this in Manhattan when he first started. Uh, this was a big part of their outreach was as he was preaching the gospel, he offered a lunch, and then they were able to kind of ask questions. So I just think it's important you're learning what it is that people are thinking uh, as you're preaching. Now, we hate this as pastors. We hate for anybody to evaluate and critique us. But again, it's about love. It's about understanding our context. What are the questions our people are asking and trying to bring the gospel to bear on those issues? All right. Well, I've talked really fast, um, and uh, hopefully you guys have stayed awake. Are we done at 4 o'clock? Is that right? Yeah. I'll tell you what, I'll be around if you have a a few questions. Uh, I'm going to pray and uh, ask for God's help. We'll be better preachers, and may many people come to know Jesus through your your proclamation. Thank you, guys, for your time. Father, we love you. We thank you for first loving us. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that the tomb is empty, and we have something to preach, and I pray that you would keep our eye on the ball, that we would keep heralding Jesus with all the passion uh, and all the compassion uh, uh, that that we have, which comes, of course, from you, and I pray we would do that in a way that is understandable uh, to people, in a way that is loving to people, And we pray that the Holy Spirit would work through our weakness, work through our ignorance, work through our inabilities so that Christ would receive all the praise. We pray you would grow up your church. I pray for these guys in front of me who are proclaiming your word, that you would strengthen them and empower them, even this week as they preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. And We pray this in his good name. Amen. Thanks, guys.